0: From Georgia Public Broadcasting this is On Second Thought I'm Virginia Prescott Here's a scene that shot around the world A man approaches an ailing and aged chimpanzee lying on a bed of straw She turns her face to him bearing an impossibly wide grin of recognition and reaches up to pat the back of his head a gesture of consolation for an old friend we're listening to a video of that tender encounter between Dr. Jan van Hoof, a Dutch biologist, and Mama, a 59-year-old chimp at the Burger Zoo. It's now been viewed tens of millions of times. Franz de Waal has spent untold hours observing animal behavior over the last 40 years. He's challenged prevailing scientific notions of animals as stimulus-response machines, devoid of emotions. His new book details findings on jealousy and reconciliation, pride and a sense of justice in primates, hope in pigs, and rats who laugh. Franz DeWall is psychology professor at Emory University and director of the Living Link Center at the Yerkes National Primate Research Center in Atlanta. He's author of several books, most recently Mama's Last Hug, Animal Emotions and What They Tell Us About Ourselves. I'm going to revisit that conversation from when the book first came out earlier this year, ahead of his appearance at the AJC Decatur Book Festival. He'll be speaking there on Sunday, September 1st. I started by asking DeWall about the man in that famous YouTube video. He was was, by the way, one of Duval's mentors, and about his relationship with the chimp, Mama.
1: Oh, he, uh, he knew her just as me uh, for 40 years, but he, of course, visits more frequently because I live here in Georgia. And so he would f- visit her regularly, and normally we would never go in with an adult chimp, whether it's a male or a female. It's just potentially dangerous. But he decided since he was dying and since he had known her so well and so closely he was going to try this and uh, and it's sort of interesting because uh you can see in the video that sh- she is tapping him on the neck and the shoulder calming him down basically so so she's she must have noticed that he was nervous i think and and typically her she she tried to calm him down instead of the other way around
0: Now, millions, tens of millions of people have seen that video. But you write that you actually have mixed feelings about filming these kind of encounters.
1: Yeah, I have mixed feelings about filming um, the greetings that I get. So if I visit the zoo, um, even if I'm among 100 visitors, the chimps come up to me and Mama will come up to me and, and greet me from a distance. And this has been filmed many times and I have mixed feelings because... What is so special? The fact that she recognizes me. Your your dog recognizes you and um, I I don't know what is so special about it. And so it um, takes away a little bit from an encounter that I could have with her if if there's 10 people around with cameras.
0: Yeah. Well, mom is part of this colony at Berger's suit that you've observed for tens of thousands of hours. I think you said what was her role among the chimps there?
1: She was a very central figure. Uh, She was not physically dominant over the males. In chimpanzees, the males are always dominant. But I always make a distinction between power and dominance. And and in terms of power, in terms of the influence on the group that she had, uh, that was enormous. And and so I always consider mama and the oldest male, those two. And the oldest male was also not alpha male. I consider those two the most powerful individuals with the most connections. And she was really a medi- mediator. So she would, um, she would step in if there was a big fight to bring the parties together afterwards because chimps tend to reconcile, but sometimes to forget about it. And so she would bring the parties together or she would extract an individual from a, a, a difficult situation or she would just groom the alpha male if he was in a bad mood, so to speak. And so she would, um, keep the tempers down in, in the group. And, and, and we actually now notice, because she died in 2016, we now notice that the group is in quite a bit of turmoil. And so we see that the influence was uh, quite um, substantial that she had.
0: So nobody has risen up to fill the vo- void of this alpha female.
1: No, she had a daughter, um, but her daughter dropped in rank right, right after she died, which is probably also related to her death, is that uh, the status that she had was partly tied to her status, I think.
0: You began studying primates at a time when anthropomorphism, this idea of attributing, let's say, human attributes or human emotions uh, upon animals was frowned upon. What did you observe that made you think differently?
1: Well, I think with species close to us, uh, such as the primates, because we are primates, Uh, That argument really doesn't wash very well in the sense that, uh, of course, we use human-like terminology because they have expressions, facial expressions, very similar, gestures, very similar, social relationships are very similar. So why would we all of a sudden have a separate terminology? So if you, for example, if you tickle a chimpanzee, you get laughing (laughs) sounds like (coughs) type sounds. Why would we call that? Because they would tell me, call it vocalized panting. No, no, it is laughing. They actually have a laugh expression and they make laughing sounds. Or if chimps kiss after a fight, which they do, uh, we should call it post-conflict mouse-to-mouse contact. (laughs) So, So they came up with all these new terminologies that I didn't agree with because I feel it obscures the connection. And I feel, especially with animals close to us, we need to maintain that connection. Now, if you're talking about an octopus... Or uh, a fish, yeah, I'm willing to go with different terminology, but this animal's so close to us, I don't think that's the right idea.
0: So why was there such a rejection of this idea of animals having emotionality?
1: Yeah, that's very strange because Darwin long ago, what is it, 160 years ago, he could freely talk about um, animal emotions. He compared animal emotions and human emotions, a bit like what I do in the book. And there was really no objection to it. But then we got, um, in the previous century, his book disappeared. His, it's the only book of him, uh, he had several books uh, that completely disappeared from view, and that's because uh, we had a, a, a brand of animal behavior students called the behaviorists who said you only can watch behavior, you cannot talk about what's behind it, we're not going to talk about cognition or intelligence or emotions or feelings, none of that is um, visible and so um, we're going to stick to behavior and we're not going to talk about these things. And so his book disappeared and now of course it's back, it's partly back because of the neuroscientists. The neuroscientists freely talk about emotions. They say that in the rat, uh, the amygdala is activated when the rat is fearful. Or you put humans in a scanner and you you show them fearful pictures and the amygdala is activated. And so the neuroscientists say the same parts of the brain are involved in the same kind of emotions. And so they sort of broke open that box. And um, now we are talking about emotions again.
0: What is the difference between emotions and feelings?
1: Yeah. I think sometimes people confuse the two and then they will say such things as you can never know the feelings of an animal and, and I agree with that but I agree with that also for humans I can never know your exact feelings you can tell me that you're happy I don't know I, I, I'm not sure that your happiness is like my happiness because feelings are private states. So feelings are very hard to work with, except if you, like psychologists, you you work linguistically, you ask people about their feelings. I cannot ask my animals about feelings, which I think is good. I'm I'm, I'm happy that I have animals who cannot fill out questionnaires because I don't trust what people say (laughs) about their feelings. I think people make up a lot of feelings. And so uh, I prefer just to watch from the outside. And the emotions are perfectly measurable. I, I can measure your skin temperature, your blood pressure, your heart rate, your voice timbre, your facial expressions. I, I can measure your emotions very objectively. It's really no problem. I can also measure certain um, hormones like cortisol, oxytocin. I, I, can, I can do a lot of objective measurement of emotions. So emotions are not slippery at all, in my opinion, because they are always expressed in the body. But the feelings, yes. If, if you ask me what, what my chimps feel, I have to hesitate. And, and I guess usually uh, that it's similar to mine, but I cannot be sure, of course.
0: Well, you have a lot of history with non-linguistic relationships with chimps like yeah. Mama. Tell me a little bit about your interactions with these non-linguistic uh, animals like Mama. What kind of relationship did you have with her?
1: Oh, I knew her very well and actually gave her her name because I felt she was the mother of the group, basically. Um, and um, each time I would visit, but I would visit maybe only once a year or once every two years, uh, each time I would visit, I would have a little interaction with her through the bars. I would not go in. You don't go in with an adult chimpanzee.
0: I'm speaking with Franz de Waal from Emory University and author of several books, most recently Mama's Last Hug, Animal Emotions and What They Tell Us About Ourselves. He's heading to the AJC Decatur Book Festival on September the 1st. In countering the idea of anthropomorphism, you use a term called anthropodenialism to describe (laughs) how far some scientists go not to ascribe emotions to animals. So what are some examples of that? You mentioned the laughing was called pant...
1: Vocalized panting. Ah, see. Yeah, so, uh, yeah, or they they say laugh-like vocalizations. Uh, yeah. yeah, I invented this word, anthropodenial because there's too many people who, uh, especially in the university, actually, if you ask the man in the street, uh, do, do animals have emotions, I don't think you get a negative answer. They say, my dog has emotions, and no one has trouble with that. Um, but in the universities, there used to be, I think it, it is disappearing, but there used to be a lot of people who object strongly to um, talking about emotions in animals. And so they are what I call an anthropodenial. They try to steer us away from comparisons between humans and animals. You find, for example, in philosophy departments, anthropology departments, sometimes psychology. You find people who feel humans are totally special, that our mind is totally special. I'm not convinced of that at all. If if our mind was so extremely special, we should find some new parts in our brain. But, you know, our brain has all the same parts as a monkey brain. It's a bigger brain, so it's, so it's a more powerful computer. Uh, I agree with that. as we, we have a more powerful intellect, but it's not a different intellect. And so all the emotions, for example, in the emotional domain, I don't think there's a, a, a huge amount of difference between us and other species.
0: Well, I'd like to talk about some of the emotional aspects that you witnessed uh, or observed in some of the chimps and other mm-hmm. primates that you, and other animals that mm-hmm. you have looked at and studied. And one of the things that you observed really as grief or depression, and mm-hmm. this is in a chimp called her babies died one after another because she wasn't lactating properly. So so how did she express depression?
1: She would um, cry and sit in a corner and not eat for weeks. Um, She was actually the only chimp that I saw maybe producing tears because tears are considered uniquely human, but she would always rub her eyes after crying in a way that made me think that maybe she had tears. But anyway, she she was very upset by all these things, and then at some point we had a, a baby chimp up for adoption, and we thought maybe we're going to teach Kaif how to um, bottle feed the baby. And since chimps are tool users and, and they understand a lot of things about tools, it's, it's really not that challenging for them. And so um, for the for the first six weeks, I kept that baby myself um, and, and showed it her on occasion and showed her how to bottle feed and, and, and let her hold the bottle through the bars sometimes. And then at some point we put it in the straw of her night cage, the baby, and um, to see if she would adopt it and what she would do with it. Now, the, at first she really didn't want to touch it. She, she looked at it and she looked at us and, and she really didn't want to go close to it. And I think that is because she considered that baby my baby and not her baby Uh, and so we had to explain to her uh, and you can explain a lot of things to apes we had to explain to her and point at the baby and at some point she picked it up and from that moment on she did the bottle feeding so she um and later she did also bottle feeding of her own babies her own her own offspring so as a result she was um, extremely grateful towards me she um uh, she was before that time she was sometimes a bit obnoxious to me but after that time i was basically a family member uh, she, uh, she was always so happy to see me and i think that's because this changed her life uh, and and she raised these kids uh, marvelously she was really a good mother
0: You're listening to my earlier conversation with Franz DeWall, psychology professor at Emory University and director of the Living Link Center at the Yerkes National Primate Research Center in Atlanta, where his office window overlooks a colony of chimps. He's also author of several books, most recently Mama's Last Hug. He'll be at the AJC Decatur Book Festival to talk about that on Sunday, September the 1st. And stay with us. We're going to be back with more on the emotional and political lives of animals after a short break. I'm Virginia Prescott. Stay with us for more of On Second Thought. We're back with On Second Thought from GPB. I'm Virginia Prescott. And you may know my guest, Franz de Waal, from one of his many popular TED Talks about animal empathy, cooperation, and morality, or read one of his many books on those subjects. He is psychology professor at Emory University and director of the Living Link Center at the Yerkes National Primate Research Center in Atlanta. His newest book, Mama's Last Hug, is about the emotional capacity of animals and how they function and what they reveal about us. He's going to be talking about the book at the AJC Decatur Book Festival on September the 1st. But I spoke with him shortly after Mama's Last Hug first came out. We're going to rejoin that conversation now with Dwal explaining how the other chimps reacted when Mama died at the Burger
1: Zoo. Oh, that's interesting. Is that um, There's, of course, always grieving for individuals who are attached in the sense that they eat less or they don't eat at all and they become silent and quiet. That has been described for many animals who have attachments, like uh, also for dolphins and whales and uh, bears and so on. But um, in in her case, we we also did something at the zoo that normally we never do. We we let all the other chimps visit her after she had died, her body. And um, they did something that has also been observed in the wild, is that there's a certain testing going on to see if she's really dead. Uh, which, which looks if the males do it because the males are very rough, um, that looks really bad, they jump on top of <laughs> of the body and stuff, and they have and the wildest has also been observed. Uh, which is, of course, a very drastic way of testing. But what the females do, um, in this case, what they did is that they would walk up to her and, and lift her arm and see it drop down. and So they were testing out her body. It's, uh, of course, in hospitals, we at Emory Hospital, if you die, um, they're also going to test you out to see if you're really dead. So um, it's, it's not such a strange thing to do, but they do that.
0: You also write about some bonobos who found a dead
1: snake or somebody <laughs> killed a snake. And their response
0: uh-huh. is different. So there's a sense of, what, finality, recognition of death?
1: Yeah, I think... um some animals they understand death in others. I'm not sure that they know about their own mortality. I'm not convinced of that. Is that a, a chimp who has even a chimp who has seen several chimps die that they realize this is going to happen to themselves one day? I I don't have evidence for that. But they certainly has a very, a very strong reaction to the death of somebody else. And the snake case was in the bonobos. These they had found a very um, in the wild. They had found a very dangerous snake and um, they were very scared of it, and they were poking it with sticks. They would not touch it with their hands until uh, a high-ranking female grabbed the snake by the tail and swung it against the ground and killed it. From that moment on, all of a sudden, everyone was interested in the snake, and the kids started draping it around their necks and walking around with it. Uh, clearly, um, they had decided that this was, the snake was in a different state than before. So, so I do think they, they understand something about death and how irreversible death is. Uh, and this is also, I think, in your pets, in your cats, and your dogs, you can probably observe these things. So, so the deaths of others, they understand and they are affected by it. But uh, I'm always wondering if they understand anything about their own deaths.
0: How about animal, other animals expressing grief? Uh, mm-hmm. You know we hear of the the dog who lays atop the grave of mm-hmm. its the person who was its human sure. companion. Do you use the word owner
1: owner you can do owner or master, whatever mistress or whatever you want to call it
0: <laughs> just wondering yeah. but but also elephants you know friends. yeah,
1: elephants they pass bones around they visit the bones of elephants that they probably have known uh, after their death, and they pick up the bones with their trunks and pass them around and sniff them. And we don't know what's going on, but it is a a ritual that they go through, and so they they probably also have long memories of their friends.
0: If we're thinking about feelings as something that is internalized, Mm -hmm. and then instinct is something that one acts on. So how are these emotions, grief in an elephant or uh, hope in a pig, how are they adaptive? How do they serve the species?
1: Well, for grief, it's maybe more harder to say. There are certain emotions are absolutely adaptive, like like fear and disgust. So you need to be disgusted by things that potentially can give you parasites or that can poison you. So the smell of a rotting animal, for Yeah, th- so you need to be disgusted by these things because that's not good to eat from it except if you're maybe a dung beetle or something like that. <laughs> there are certain things that you should not be eating. And uh, so that's disgust and fear. Of course, for predators, you need to have fear. So there certain emotions or aggression. If you're territorial, you need to be aggressive to individuals who enter your territory. So there are certain emotions that absolutely you need to have. There's others. Uh, yeah, I'm not sure. Like, like grief, I don't know what grief, what good it does for the individual, except that it it is sort of lingering attachment. You were attached to an individual. The individual has died and the attachment cannot disappear right away. It, it stays there for a while. And that's what produces the grief.
0: Well, you've been exploring these kind of relationships and social systems of animals since uh, your first book, The Political Mm -hmm. Chimpanzee. That's when we first Mm -hmm. heard about it. These roles and power structures in the colony. And you are largely responsible for polarizing the term alpha male, Mm -hmm. which I think has been co-opted by a lot of different people for a lot of different purposes. So can you reconnect us or correct the record?
1: Yeah, so uh, my book, Chimpanzee Politics, m- became very popular, especially uh, since uh, Newt Gingrich recommended it to the Republicans. And I'm not sure what good that did. Or, but anyway, he, he he recommended it, I think, for the, the power politics that was in there. And I introduced the term alpha male, which then was thrown around by many people in Washington. But I always feel that the, the term is sometimes used in the wrong way. If, you, For example, if you go to Amazon.com and you ask for, for alpha male books, you get all these business books about how to bully others and how to beat them over the head and let them know that, they, that you're a boss and, and, and don't mess with me and things like that. So it's all very negative and, and aggressive. And the best alpha males that I have known are not like that at all. They're, they're not bullies. They're individuals who keep the peace and keep the group together. And are the consolers in chief if, if something bad has happened to some individual? So they they have a much more constructive role than bullying. They, they need on occasion to be aggressive, for sure, because otherwise they lose their position. So, so it's not like they are uh, completely peaceful individuals, but um, they're not necessarily bullies. And so in that sense, I feel um, people have overlooked, because I described it in chimpanzee politics pretty clearly, uh, the role of the alpha male. They have overlooked that. And then you have the alpha female. That's another story. Is that Mama, of course, was an alpha female. She was also not always kind, I must say. She would um, also beat up females on occasion. Um, But um, she was clearly a mediator. And and her function was to a large degree keeping the group together and keeping everyone sort of in peaceful relationships.
0: And in keeping with your political metaphor you call her i think the party whip you want for your favorite
1: yeah because she would uh, she would have a preference among the males of who would be alpha male and so if the males were in power struggles, she would pick one and um if then certain females had a different idea if other females sided with another male she would uh, let them know she would really beat them up and make sure that they knew that this was not um not her choice. And yeah. she also had a really mm-hmm.
0: acute sense of power for humans. I think you wrote something about, was it the zoo director yeah, at the Burger yeah. Zoo? How did she eat?
1: She kept track of all the relationships also outside the colony, uh, also the human relationships. And, and the zoo director was a very tall man. And he would um, occasionally, maybe once every couple of weeks, he would stop by to see how things were going. And, of course, everyone was very jumpy and nervous about his visit because um, if he was not happy, he would let you know that he was not happy. And so I think Mama picked up on that and that she saw that this man, oh, yeah, everyone is nervous around him. So I better uh, be friends with him. And so she I think she picked up on these things.
0: mm mm-hmm. Is the alpha male, I just want to go back to that for a minute, Or the, is that always the
1: strongest
0: male in the clan?
1: No, the alpha male can be the smallest male. That's the interesting thing. Is that people always think it needs to be a big, strong fellow. I think it helps. It helps for an alpha male to be big. But... If a, a small male has the right friends, if he has the support of females like mama and he has the support of one or two other males who help him get his position, uh, the smallest male can be alpha male. Uh, the, the, the problem if, if he is smaller is that he needs to keep his friends happy. So he when he's then in the alpha position, he needs to let them mate with females or share food with them or groom them a lot. or He, he needs to keep his friends happy because, of course, if they're not so happy anymore… If they think he's um, he's act, acting too uh, too independently, then um, he may lose his position.
0: How do they campaign for <laughs> position? Uh,
1: the position? Actually, one of the most interesting things I always always feel is that they campaign also like human politicians, is that they tickle the babies of the females. <laughs> so if the um, human politicians they hold babies in the air, I have a lot of pictures of politicians holding babies in the air, and. It's a very odd thing to see Obama or Bush or whoever, they're lifting babies in the air um, because that's not something that babies necessarily like. So they do, but I think they do that because it's a display is to show to the whole group or in this case to the whole auditorium there. Um, I am a man, but I can still handle babies and they don't drop and um, you can trust me with babies, something <laughs> like that. And so it's a very um, notable display. And the chimpanzee males also, when they're campaigning for the higher ranking positions, uh, apart from all the other things that they do, like intimidating each other and throwing rocks at each other and stuff like that, they also approach the females who have young babies and they tickle these babies and they they act very playfully. Normally, they're, they're not particularly interested in babies, in my opinion. They don't care much for them. But in, at this time, and I think it's a way of, of winning these females over. Is because if the female thinks... He's nice with my baby. That's a positive thing.
0: Do male chimps in general have much relationship with even their own offspring?
1: No. The strange thing is that we humans, that's where we really deviate from bonobos and chimps, is that we have these family structures where male, female, offspring, you know. Um, In chimpanzees and bonobos, it's the female who does everything. The male's barely involved. And that also means that females cannot have a whole lot of offspring because uh, they cannot travel through the trees with two babies clinging to them that's an impossibility and so they have long intervals between the the children
0: my guest primatologist Emory professor ted talker franz de Waal, will be at the ajc decatur book festival on sunday september 1st he has been challenging prevailing concepts of animal behavior for decades and we're talking about his book from this year mama's last hug animal emotions and what they tell us about ourselves to get back to the emotional capacity or expressions, there are some behaviors among those in the social system that are sort of concealed from the rest. The chimps try to con- show, not show their facial expression.
1: Oh, yeah. They can, they can be dis- deceptive. They can, um, For example, males, when they, uh, when they confront each other and one of the males is nervous about it, they will show a grin because chimps, they usually show their teeth when they're nervous. And um, that is not a good s- signal, of course, if, because the other male will pick up on that and say, oh, he's getting nervous. And um, so they try to hide that. They, they may hide it behind their hand. They may put their lips together. Or more commonly, they just turn around and walk away so that you don't see that expression. Um, but they hide these um, expressions of nervousness.
0: So you wouldn't call that shame? Is that no, too I think anthropomorphic? It's,
1: it's actually more like deception. I think. Uh-huh. Yes, shame may occur that they lose a fight and and, and are dejected. That, that's closer to shame, I would say. But uh, deception is is possible, and it means that they are aware of their own facial expressions, just as we are aware. We we very often um, cannot suppress an expression. So you you see, for example, your children do something terrible, but you're laughing, uh, and you you put an, a newspaper over your in front of you so that they don't know. And things like We do that all the time, that kind of stuff.
0: Is it different in those expressions, different in the wild and in the colonies that you've observed at Burger Zoo or at Yerkes, for example, or there's another place, uh, Safe Haven in Louisiana?
1: Chimp Haven, yeah. Chimp Haven, that's uh, uh, uh. it. Yeah, in captivity, um, I think this, the basic psychology of the chimp doesn't change. And actually, when I wrote Chimpanzee Politics a year later, I discovered that a Japanese team in the wild had had seen basically the same sort of interactions and coalitions among the males and so we were discussing all the similarities so so, so the basic psychology is not really different but the time budget and what they do um, is is obviously very different. So chimpanzees in the field, of course, they need to find food, and, and that takes them an enormous amount of time and an enormous amount of travel. They disperse. They're not hanging together like chimps in captivity do. So, so yes, there's all sorts of differences, and that's why we, we need information from both places. We need the more detailed stuff that we can get in captivity. We can also do experiments in captivity that in the field are not done. And you need um, the field data to understand what is it good for, certain emotions or certain social interactions. Uh, what are they used for normally in in a group of chimps?
0: Well, one of these experiments is with the capuchin monkeys, mm-hmm. and demonstrating that they have a sense of fairness or or justice. How, what, what was the experiment?
1: Yeah, we did that here at uh, at Yerkes. We I had a, a capuchin colony for a long time, and we noticed that each time we did tests with them because we did touch screen tasks and things like that, they would um, pay close attention to what somebody else was getting. So you would think that normally they should only care about what am I getting for what I have done but they were always watching what the neighbors were getting, and um, that's why Sarah Brosnan, who's here at Georgia State University, and myself, we, we, uh, we set up an experiment to see uh, how capuchins react to inequities. So if you, if you feed both capuchins, side by side, pieces of cucumber for the same amount of work, they're perfectly happy, and they, they can eat cucumber many times in a row. If you beat, feed both of them uh, grapes, Grapes are much better than cucumber. They're also perfectly happy, of course. And the, the trouble starts when you feed one of them grapes and the other one cucumber. Then, then the one who gets cucumber is really unhappy, even though normally they're perfectly happy with it. Now, in this case, they're not happy anymore, and they start to protest. They start to throw the food out. They, they refuse to do the task at some point. They just sit in the back and don't want to perform anymore. Uh, and so they become very upset and I think that's the beginning of the sense of fairness. It's, it's not a full-blown sense of fairness because they they get upset because they don't get what the other one is getting. With chimpanzees, we, we go further because in chimpanzees, they may refuse. The one who gets the grape may refuse the grape till the other one also gets a grape. So there we're getting much closer to, huh. to what in humans we would call a sense of fairness. Uh, because even the one who's who's a, in has an advantage is 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 not necessarily happy with the outcome
0: you've yeah, seen little experiments with kids in that little little toddlers or little babies they share with each other if somebody doesn 't get something
1: yeah ch- children I think till the age of maybe five or so, they have more the monkey sense of fairness it 's like they get very upset when they don 't get the same pizza slice as their sibling. Uh, and then, when they get older, yes, they may when they get older, they may start to equalize the outcomes, and then we get more to the the, the usual level of fairness.
0: We're going to take a short break and be back with Franz de Waal from Emory University and director of the Living Link Center at the Yerkes National Primate Research Center in Atlanta. He's one of the authors featured at the AJC Decatur Book Festival. Stay with us for more of On Second Thought. We're going to talk about the range of emotions and observations of animal behavior in a number of different species when On Second Thought continues. We're back with On second Thought from GPB. I'm Virginia Prescott. Ask anyone with a pet if animals express love or shame or pride or joy, and you'll likely get a hearty yes. There are about a zillion adorable online videos that they would point to as proof. Traditional ethologists say that is anthropomorphizing, projecting what is considered to be human emotions onto animals. My guest, Franz de Waal, counters that view with charges of anthropo-denial in his new book, Mama's Last Hug, Animal Emotions and What They Tell Us About Ourselves. He is among the speakers at the AJC Decatur Book Festival over Labor Day weekend. I spoke with him earlier this year, shortly after Mama's Last Hug first came out. I asked him about an experiment he did years ago to test the sexual responses of chimps in which he dressed up in women's clothing.
1: We were having fun because we had noticed that the chimps got sexually aroused if they saw a woman, like a secretary, walk by. And uh,
0: a human secretary.
1: A human, yeah, because these chimps they unfortunately there were two male chimps, they had nothing else. And so uh, just for fun we dressed up like women to see if they would fall for that, but they, they no, didn't they, go they for didn't. it. No no they but didn't But you
0: did win an Ignoble award for that, didn't you?
1: I did get an Ignoble prize, which is um sort of take off on the Nobel Prize. Um it's a, a prize that you get what, what do they say? It's it's a. A study that makes you laugh and then makes you think. That's really the definition of it. <laughs> and so I got that because we demonstrated that chimpanzees can recognize each other's behinds. And so we we did these touch sh- screen tasks with chimps. And if you would show them uh, the behind of, a, of a let's say, a male chimp, and then you would show them two male faces, one of whom belongs to that behind and the other one doesn't, they pick the right face. And so they, they connect the behinds that they see with the faces that they see. And they can only do that for the chimps that they know. If you, sh- if you give them pictures of tr- strangers, they cannot do it anymore. Huh. So I think in, in humans also, we should maybe do that one day. Uh, no one has ever done that. <laughs> I think humans probably this can do. This could be that. your second. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah no I, bill s- I think humans can probably do that.
0: <laughs> but the behinds of chimps play a very important function. The if a if a female chimp is fertile, yeah, she she,
1: she has a big balloon, a big pink balloon, pink, pink balloon,
0: balloon on the back of yeah. her. Yeah, yeah. And and then there's another. There's a role in reconciliation when mm. two male chimps, right? Isn't it that if uh-huh. they get in fights, they
1: they groom <laughs> each other's butts. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. You, you like that kind of details. <laughs> yeah, I really do. I'm
0: I'm about twelve years old. If you really get to it, but but I think it is actually the whole role of grooming is fascinating to me. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And how does that serve? It's a it's a bonding function. There are all kinds of favorites conferred on certain chimps who groom other chimps. Yeah, and uh, do
1: do we humans still groom well, quite well? We have, of course, uh, barbers, and we have. Uh, beauty salons and and I think parents need to groom their kids sometimes when they have lice and things like that. So grooming has not completely disappeared from life.
0: No, but I'm wondering Mm. if you, as somebody who Mm. interacts with chimps a lot, Mm -hmm. do you uh, participate in that grooming?
1: Oh yeah, the chimps always wanna groom. Uh, You have to be careful because if you have a little injury on your hand or your arm, they wanna open that up and I'm not for that but um yeah they they are very keen in grooming you. They may groom your hair, and yeah, we, we don 't have a whole lot of hair, of course, we are naked apes, but we have a bit of hair left for that
0: so, in your interactions with chimps, do you also make no, do you make the noises that chimps make
1: sometimes some, sometimes if you greet them, you make their noises, yeah mm-hmm. although they 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 sometimes also understand uh, human language better than you would think. Uh, I, I think they are very keen on, on your body language and so they're very good at reading body language and if you then combine it with your tone of voice and whatever you say, They're they're very very good at extracting meaning. So for example, I may be doing an experiment with with chimpanzees and and there's a female who doesn't want to participate and she's sitting in the corner and just falling asleep. And then I walk up to her and I say, well, I really would like you to work on on the task. Let's say it's a touch screen task. We don't have the whole day to wait for you. And then she she gets up and she starts to work. And I don't know what she has picked up from my voice because I, I cannot imagine that she understands what I'm saying. But she may have noticed that I'm getting impatient <laughs> or something like that. So they pick up your body language very mm-hmm, clearly. Yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. This is another diff- big difference that I thought was interesting, a surprise to me, that older females are actually considered more attractive yeah. sexually. And that is, not, is that true of any other species?
1: No, I'm not sure that that is, that is a general rule. In our species, I think the reason men find younger women attractive has partly also to do with the fact that we are a pair-bonding species. And so let's say you're a man who wants to marry. It's better to marry a young woman than an older woman if you want to have offspring with her. So, So I think in our species, it makes sense given the family systems that men fall more for younger women. But chimpanzees exactly the opposite. In, in chimpanzees, you can have, let's say, a um, 16-year-old female who is swollen and you would think all the males are flocking to her. No, no. If there's a 35-year-old female who's swollen, they will not even look at the 16-year-old. They don't care one bit about it because they're completely focused on the older female. So the chimps are really the opposite. Yeah.
0: And that's with chimps is it the same with for example uh, bonobos other other I think mon- bonobos are similar to that yeah. Uh-huh. yeah and bonobos of course this is the other thing that you've given us is um, besides the alpha male uh-huh. the idea of bonobos as what the 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 primates that make love not war yeah, 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 so yeah. A, a sort of hypersexual but i think more interestingly is that it is the women, it is the female that are the matriarchs.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so, so yeah, and in, in mama is the alpha female of a chimpanzee group, but it means that she's alpha over the females. In a bonobo group, the alpha female is most of the time alpha over everybody, including the males. And that is because bonobo females have a very high level of solidarity. They are collectively dominant over the males. They're not individually dominant. They're smaller than males and so individually if you have for example a zoo with one male and one female bonobo uh, the male is always dominant as soon as that zoo adds a second female things turn around because now these two females are hanging together and they have sex together and they form a coalition and the male is just not powerful enough to dominate them and so in bonobos very interesting system And, and and i think partly that's the reason why bonobos are a bit less popular in anthropology anthropology has for the longest time had this story about uh, human progress, is like humans beat up everybody, we, we defeated the Neanderthals, and all of this, it's all warfare and aggression. And the bonobo just doesn't fit. It's a female-dominated species. The groups mingle, they're they not territorial, they don't fight with each other. Uh, they have a lot of sex, which is maybe also makes people nervous. Uh, and so the bonobo is, um, is not very popular in certain circles. But, but, for example, the gay community and the feminist community, they love the bonobo for mm. other reasons.
0: <laughs> Franz de Waal has spent decades studying and... I'm speaking with Franz de Waal, author of several books, most recently Mama's Last Hug, Animal Emotions and What They Tell Us About Ourselves. He's going to be talking about that one at the AJC Decatur Book Festival on Labor Day weekend. We're talking a lot about primates, but there are other experiments that, uh, on rats, for example, who laugh mm-hmm. and jump for joy. Why would that serve them?
1: Or laughing has to do with playfulness. So all animals who play, they have certain vocalizations and expressions to indicate that they're playful so that you don't confuse their approach with something else like an attack. And so um, uh, chimpanzees laugh when you tickle them. But uh, Jak Panksepp, a scientist who worked on the neuroscience of emotions, he discovered at some point that his rats also laugh. You, you just cannot hear it because it's supersonic. And so he, he he constructed an apparatus with which he could hear what they were actually producing as vocalizations. And um, yeah, he became famous for the tickling rats he would tickle them and he would show that they actually follow your hand. They, they, they want to be tickled. It's not something that is just accidental. They, they want uh, to be tickled by the human hand. And of course, when they play together, when two rats play together, uh, they have the same co- sort of vocalizations.
0: So there's also, just want to get to some of these other kind of emotional lives, pride in crabs, coyotes. <laughs> so how is pride expressed in these species?
1: Pride, um, uh, it's usually a sign of victory. So, so we show pride when we're an athlete uh, who has won a race, for example. Then you have all these pride displays. We, we spread our arms and we we smile and we look big. And, and the losers look small, of course. They, they, they're more like a shame type response. And so the, um, there is, for example, a, a very famous study of... Um, the triumph display of the geese. So when when, um, when geese are always pair bonded, male, female, and when the male chases off another male, which he regular, regularly has to do, he comes back to the female with what is called a triumph display. He makes certain sounds and they, they stretch their necks together and they have this whole ritual that they go through to celebrate that he chased off the rival. And And so, yes, you have certain species, like the crabs also they they uh, make certain noises with their um, their uh, legs um, which they stride together so, so there are certain species that have triumph displays, which is gets us very close to the to sort of pride emotion
0: so is there anything any sense of let's say consciousness
1: in animals? The thing is that no one is able to define consciousness in a way that I can work with. So, so there's a lot of books and uh, articles about consciousness that I don't know how to translate into a testing of animals. Um, but I do believe that there are certain things that we do for, that require consciousness and that animals also do. So for example you cannot plan a party for tomorrow at your home without consciously thinking about what you're going to buy and who's going to come and and so on. Now, we know that animals can plan. There's all sorts of studies of uh, future-oriented behavior, like, like chimps taking tools. In the wild, for example, they collect tools sometimes many hours before they're going to use them at a different place. So there's lots of evidence and also experimental evidence for planning in other species. And so why would we assume that we cannot plan without consciousness, but they can. That would be a very strange assumption. Or, for example, you mentioned, do we know what we know? That is called metacognition. Mm-hmm. Do, do I have knowledge of my own knowledge? That is being tested. Uh, actually, at Emory, we have a scientist who tests um, monkeys uh, on, their, on their metacognition. Do they, do they have knowledge of their own knowledge? So I think in an indirect way, we have evidence for consciousness in animals, but um I don't have a direct access to it and maybe one day in the neuroscientists will but I don't. Mm-hmm.
0: So what are the limits when we're thinking about the emotional lives of animals? What is going too far? What is too much projection?
1: Uh well if you know your animals I think you know, you know the limits uh, of, of of where where you become unreasonable in your assumptions uh I I think this animals like chimpanzees uh, you have to just assume that in the emotional lives it's extremely similar to ours if you go more distant if, if you work on lizards or uh, other other species yeah um, there's a, there's probably a lot of projection going on that you have to be careful with
0: there's a concept you describe as future orientation you know there's a kind mm-hmm. of timeline of understanding moving from past to present how do we consider that in when we're looking at emotional lives of animals?
1: Yeah, I call that timeline emotions. The emotions that relate to the past, such as forgiveness or gratitude, they, they, they relate to past events. And, and I've studied all my life reconciliation behavior in all sorts of primates. They reconcile after fights. And so forgiveness is not necessarily uh, off-limits for them. And then you have emotions related to the future, we would say probably hope and optimism. Um, yeah, and I think uh, actually there's experiments now on 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 optimism. They do experiments where, for example, you you present animals with um, a certain stimulus that announces food, let's say, and so they, they want to go for that stimulus. And then you present another one, which is negative, where you, you get nothing. And then at some point, they present a stimulus in between the two, exactly in between. So let's say it's a sound, and it's a sound exactly between the two. Then they see if the animals think it is it announces food or not. And if they, if they think it announces food, it is, they're optimistic. If they think not, it is pessimistic. And, and animals who are treated well, so, so for example, your dog at home is maybe treated well, will be an optimist. Uh, pigs who are raised in stalls that are enriched in groups, and so they have a good life, and mud and everything. Those pigs are usually more optimistic than pigs who are kept under very uh, miserable circumstances. They are more pessimistic. So, so we, we, we start to talk now about these emotions of future and, and past oriented.
0: The subtitle of your book? what their emotions tell us about ourselves, our behaviors, our emotions, our social structures. How is this instructive for us?
1: I think at many levels it is instructive. First of all, the continuity, the similarity between us and other species. Um, But also, I think, in writing the book, I realized all of a sudden, which I should have realized before, how much of our lives turns around the emotions, we, we, cannot, we cannot take a single decision without emotions being involved. Uh, the most momentous decisions that we take, let's say, like, who, who am I going to marry, for example, is completely an emotional decision, I think. That's not a rational decision. Even though we pride ourselves on being rational beings, uh, you know, the funny story on Darwin is that when he, he was going to marry he decided to make a long list of the pros and cons of marriage and of and of his partner he forgot to put he forgot to put uh, am i attracted or am i in love <laughs> he put, forgot to to put the most important ones in there but he had a long list of the pros and cons of marriage and he, but he he wanted to live in the illusion i think that he was taking a rational decision and i think men more than women actually men have that illusion that they are rational beings and i'm not convinced at all if you look at men um, during sports games, for example. Uh, there's not a whole lot of rationality going on there, I think. So, so men are very emotional beings too, and, and their decisions are very much affected by it.
0: So what do you think people who don't completely disregard the idea that there can be emotionality in animals, what do they miss?
1: Yeah, I think people who disregard it are, are probably people who don't have animals, who may be not attracted to animals at all, because I think it's very hard to have a dog or a cat and not believe in animal emotions. I think that's a very hard, hard proposition. Franz de Wall there,
0: psychology professor at Emory University, director of the Living Links Center at the Yerkes National Primate Research Center in Atlanta, and author of several books, most recently Mama's Last Hug, Animal Emotions, and What They Tell Us About Ourselves will be at the AJC Decatur Book Festival to talk about it on Sunday, September 1st. Details at gbbnews.org. On Second Thought is produced by Amelia Brock, LaRaven Taylor, Priya Mahadevan, and Jake Troyer. Our engineer is Jesse Nyswanger. Our interns are Allison Kraussman and Jessica Lowell. We get help from Don Smith, and Amy Kylie is senior producer. I'm Virginia Prescott. Thanks so much for spending some time with On Second Thought.